Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, as we continue our work through this book of the Bible. I want to begin this way. In college, I minored in psychology, and because of that, I got to take some interesting classes. One of the most interesting was a class called Social Psychology. It was interesting because of the frequent naming or steadying of what happens in our daily lives. And so you'd come to a chapter and like, oh, they have a name for that. So chapters about gas prices, cults, how people respond in emergencies, and why you need to do a lot of pointing in emergencies were some of the topics covered. But there was also the topic of conflict resolution, And in the world of psychology and counseling and business, there are strategies to conflict resolution. And one of them is, where do you sit? Do you know that where you sit in relation to someone else can change how you feel about them and how they feel about you? If you want someone to feel on your side in a discussion, sit them at your side. Normally in these situations, if you want to avoid unnecessary conflict, you don't sit right across from someone because that can give you feelings of competition and defensiveness. So that's why you will often see that someone may seat you sort of at the corner to you or they will utilize a round table. I'm pretty sure all of these strategies are responsible for the round table industry. And there are all sorts of strategies like this, or what we might call a little more cynical tricks of the trade, that can help people work together to bring resolution. And I've seen some of these work really well, but I've also seen them completely fail. Today in our text, we're going to talk about maintaining unity in the body of Christ. And what does that look like? And I want to put it in this framework. What do you do when all your plans and strategies fail? Because they're not perfect, and they often do fail. So what gives us the best chance of strengthening the unity of the church? And we're going to see three main answers to this question in our text today. Number one, we're going to see the need for godly character in conflict. Two, we're going to see the eagerness to pursue peace. And three, we're going to see the need for a foundation unified around Jesus. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Follow along as I read. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This section, and honestly, this half of the book, begins with Paul urging them to a certain manner of life. As we talked about before, as we've studied the book of Ephesians, there is a major break between chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 6. Whereas the emphasis of the first three chapters was on doctrine and truth, in chapters 4 to the end of the book, the emphasis is on living out that life. 
And you see that in that word, therefore, the beginning of verse 1. What follows out in those commands is what a life of a believer should look like. But we need to see the basis of this most broad command in in chapter 4, verse 1. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We've seen this phrase, walk in a manner, before. It's a way to picture our lives. It's a metaphor that you picture your life walking down a path. And the second phrase there, the calling to which you have been called, speaks to the calling of our salvation, how God calls us to himself in Christ. An example of this would be in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, which says, And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This also echoes back to the beginning of chapter 1, where Paul spoke of us being chosen by God. And so when we put those two ideas together, we can reword verse 1 this way, live a life worthy of your salvation. Now, as we've gone through Ephesians, we've spent the first three chapters describing how great our salvation is. Now we examine what it means to live a life worthy of that salvation. And this command really encompasses all the next three chapters, not just what we're going to see today. But it leads to a big heart question. Am I living a life worthy of my great salvation? Do I live like someone who is in fact saved by grace through faith in Jesus and not by my works? Do I live like I am saved by a gospel that unites all believers around the world and throughout history and that breaks down the walls of hostility? Or do I disrespect my salvation and the God who saved me by how I live? This leads to the first way that we see what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel, and that comes in verses 2 and 3. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The main idea of verses 2 to 3 is that, idea, that last phrase of eager to maintain the unity. But what I think we want to notice is how he actually begins with the virtues that undergird and bring about maintaining that unity. That the work of reconciliation and unity in the body of Christ begins with cultivating godly character. That as I stated at the beginning, there are many strategies for conflict resolution or negotiating, but if these virtues are not in place, true unity is pretty much impossible. So let's spend some time looking at these different unity virtues that Paul lists here in Ephesians chapter 4. The first one is humility. Now, there's an interesting aspect to the Christian virtue of humility that is sometimes lost because of where we live in history. But in the literature of that time and in the cultures of that time, humility was not seen as a good thing. 
Or as one historian comments, it was described as a weakness or a shameful lowliness. So the culture at that time did not value humility. But Paul calls for it here, and also humility is used to describe Jesus himself. We think of Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Paul takes it upon himself to describe in Acts chapter 20, which he says to the Ephesian elders, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. Humility means not being proud, but rather thinking of the needs of others. The important passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And it's here I want to pause and think through how humility makes the difference when we engage in conflict resolution and maintaining peace. One of my favorite ways to think about this is that humility uses question marks. One of the most underutilized tools for maintaining unity is asking questions. The humble person asks questions of others because they know that they might be incorrect or need to learn. The humble person asks questions because they might understand that other people have different views of the world and their view is normally not not the only one. The humble person asks questions because just because you don't see something doesn't mean it's not happening. And the humble person asks questions because it leads to constructive conversations, which is the goal, not just winning an argument. And building on that idea, that idea of winning as opposed to building constructive consensus, that if we are concerned about the welfare of others, if we are truly humble, we are less likely to be driven just to win. Because as has been often said, if you're only trying to win, you've already lost. Humility is paired with here the next virtue, and that is gentleness. Again, what is interesting is that we can trace this back to Jesus himself. The book of Matthew tells us that Jesus, with his gentleness, fulfilled prophecy. So Matthew chapter 12, verses 20 to 21, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Again, what is often seen as a weakness in this world is actually strength and godliness to Jesus. If gentleness is good enough for Jesus, how much more for those of us who follow him? But I would also argue that gentleness is in fact a form of strength. Think of lifting weights or a heavy object. A weight can feel the heaviest when you're trying to set it on the ground as opposed to dropping it. 
And in fact, in practice, some of the strongest people I know are the most gentle. In that sense, it is related to self-control, which in no accident is located right next to it in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. When we are gentle, we are not lashing out in anger. And this, again, relates back to humility. When we are gentle, we show our care for the other person. In thinking through the applications of this, I want to focus on the tone of gentleness in our interactions with each other. When I am gentle with someone else, it is more believable that I am acting for their good. And tone is one of the best ways that we can show gentleness. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Go ahead and start yelling and accusing someone if you want to pour gasoline on the fire of conflict. But a mature believer needs to work towards this goal. To speak the truth firmly, but with gentleness. And in doing so, you are following the pattern of Jesus himself. The third virtue here is patience. Now, the word itself is a great word picture in the original Greek. It is a compound word that can literally be translated long-suffering. There can be a time aspect to patience. To endure over a period of time is practicing patience. And this, of course, flies in the face of our right-now culture in which we live. How is this helpful in maintaining unity and peace? First of all, personal change is not a fast process. Other people do not always act the way we want them to. This will require us to have patience. It also shows us the need to fight against the hot take and rapid response of our news and entertainment. Think of all the shows you listen to that name it and call it Overreaction Monday. The Seahawks lose one game, and the second the game is over, everyone is calling for everyone to be fired. What a picture of a lack of patience. We do it with our sports. How easy is it to do it with each other? One of the ways that we can practice this is in the sphere of maintaining unity is that we give ourselves time to respond. If something happened, you're often helped by taking a night to sleep on it before you have a conversation or send that email. The picture we should have is this, of believers working constructively to maintain unity And because this is a project that is not completed this side of heaven, we must be patient with one another. If you are a believer in Jesus, be prepared for long suffering. This leads to the next virtue, and that is bearing with one another in love. 
Now the word translated bearing with, besides evoking pictures of animals, could also be translated in a helpful way for our normal way of speaking of put up with. We see this in our relationships all the time. Yes, this can be healthy and it takes wisdom to know when it is, but it's also just a normal part of life. People are going to be different from you, have different opinions than you, live their lives differently from you. We need a category for being at peace with people acting differently from us. Why? Because we love them. Notice that this, third, this fourth one is paired with love. Bearing with one another in love. If I only love those who are 100% like me, first of all, I will be very alone in this world. But I'm also missing out on the grace of loving one another. A loving person has a category for loving others who are different. And if love is not at the root of maintaining peace, then we have a problem. We seek to live at peace because of love, not from forceful conformity. What are some ways this applies to our daily life? It can mean many things. Let me give you a couple ideas here. One of the actions I put in this category is giving people the benefit of the doubt. This means normally, until otherwise known, that someone has a good reason for doing what they are doing. I would also put in this category, the biblical category of overlooking an offense. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is, it is his glory to overlook an offense. This allows us out of love for the other person to not assume bad intentions or to allow for honest mistakes. Peter says in his letter, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes out of love, we can move quickly through a conflict through a short conversations. Some of the best moments I've experienced is when a quick apology is offered and accepted because of the love that exists between those two people. We bear with one another out of love. I wanted to spend a little extra time on those. One, because normally when this passage is preached, I, I feel like we can move pretty quickly through those. But I want you to see the foundational nature of those virtues. That of all the activity that we might do in the cause of reconciliation really should begin with cultivating in our own lives these virtues. It also helps us from being too quick to blame everything on the other person. It gives you something to do other than to say, well, we're in conflict because of how bad they are. But if we start with, I am going to be a person who shows humility. 
who shows gentleness, who shows patience, and who bears with one another in love, when that's where we begin, that puts us in such a place to actually bring about peace and unity. And if we try to skip steps, it's more likely to fail. Because we're not remembering humility, care for others, love for one another as we enter into these conversations. With that, let's move on to the next part in verse 3 there. Where as we cultivate these virtues, then verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And as we look at this phrase, eager to maintain, I want to focus on two aspects of this command. Two categories that I want to give us to understand what this looks like in our lives. And the first is willingness, and the second one is active participation. Let's begin with willingness. For there to be real unity among people and among believers in the church, the people involved must be willing participants. Have you ever tried to have a conversation with someone about solving a problem and you can tell that they don't want to be there? Or at work, you can tell that they were forced by the boss to come but have no interest in solving the problem. We can act that way in conflict. Not being willing can be a lack of desire to actually solve the problem. Not being willing can be wanting someone else to solve the problem. Not being willing can be refusing to sincerely participate in the process. I remember quite a few years ago, I was mediating a conflict between two men who went to church together. And no matter what the other man said, the first man would not change his mind or accept any apologies. What it felt like was running into a brick wall. No surprise, we weren't able to find reconciliation there. We need to be willing participants. The second aspect is what I'm going to call active participation. The word translated eager there can also be translated make every effort. And combined with the word maintain gives us this, the idea that we all know deep in our hearts that unity can be hard work. These active words tell us that maintaining unity is active work. It doesn't just happen. Think of maintaining your garden at home or your lawn, or whatever piece of greenery you have at your house. Think of all the work that goes into simply, quote, maintaining that. In the same way, we must always be actively maintaining the unity of the church. And this leads to an implied third aspect of this command. That all this is written to the entire church. We need to notice that in this letter written to the Ephesians, it is written to the entire Ephesian church. This is not a special section of the letter written to the leadership. This active work of maintaining the unity is for the whole church. 
Now, the elders and I may have a larger role depending on the circumstances, but I want you to hear this. Everybody has their part to play. One danger we can fall into is just hoping that somebody else does the maintaining part. Now, there is also another problem where we are busybodies and we are trying to be in everybody's business. But normally what I've seen is that we want someone else to do the heavy lifting. And what I want you to see from this is that all of us have a part to play. Now, many times your role as a believer, will be smaller depending on the conflict. But for unity to be maintained, unity needs to be a whole church project. And we all have our parts to play. At this part of the text... I want us to look specifically at how Paul describes the unity that he has called the church to maintain. So first we see that it is described as the unity of the Spirit. We are not united by opinions or origins. We are united to each other through the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are born again, and those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior are united to each other. We saw this time and time again through the first three chapters of Ephesians. So we need to understand that the unity we have with one another was created by the Holy Spirit. And to somewhat out of context, borrow Jesus' words in Mark 10, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It is so essential to do the work of maintaining unity in the body of Christ when we remember that this is God's work. God has saved each of us individually, but he has saved us into a people. It is the Holy Spirit himself who binds us together. And because of that, we are eager to maintain his unity. But Paul also describes this unity as the bond of peace. Our unity in Christ and the work that we do to maintain that unity is to show itself as peace. We think of James chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We work for peace with one another as a testimony to the bond of peace we have from the Holy Spirit. Part of maintaining unity is actually in what we reflect out to a lost world about Jesus. And if we proclaim a gospel of peace, where we have peace with God and peace with one another, 
We need to live out that peace in our everyday lives. Paul closes this section, which will be continued on next week in verses 7 to 16. But Paul closes this passage by referencing the theological foundation of our unity. Let's look at verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, basics of Bible reading here, when you have seven of one word in three verses, pay attention. I hope you heard it and how I read it. One, 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 one. Hmm, what's he trying to say? We've spoken before in earlier chapters about how our salvation unites us. So I want to focus on what Paul is trying to communicate to us in this list. There is one church, the one body of Christ. They're not multiple peoples of God. For example, one for Jews and one for Gentiles. There is one spirit. There is only one Holy Spirit, and all believers in Jesus are indwelt with that same Holy Spirit. We are reminded of the story of Peter preaching to Cornelius and his Gentile household. They believe and receive the Holy Spirit in a way reminiscent of how Peter received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And Peter says in Acts chapter 10, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? There is one hope through the salvation call of Jesus. We have the same hope of resurrection through salvation in Christ. And there is one Lord. We have the same Savior and the same Lord whom we follow. When he says there is one faith, we could understand this, that it is only through faith in Jesus that all people are saved. But I think in the context, it seems best to understand one faith as a reference to the shared doctrine and truth of our faith. Think about how we refer to our church doctrine as our statement of faith. It's that idea here. We are united by the shared truth of our faith. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded many years ago now of when I started seminary and my Lutheran grandpa's greatest fear is that I would become a Baptist. I set his mind at ease when I showed him this church's statement of faith because I knew that our first level doctrine unified us. He still might have been a little worried, but for other reasons. And finally, there is one God and Father of all. We all worship and are reconciled to the same God. This also completes a reference to the Trinity in this part of the chapter, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul takes some time to describe this God who unites us. And notice he switches from repeating one to repeating all. 
So our God is the Father of all, meaning he is the God who created all things and all people. He rules over all. He works through all, a reference to God's universal sovereignty. And he is in all, a reference to God's presence everywhere. We think of Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? We are united under God as his people. Now, after going through the individual parts of that list, I want you to think of that list as a whole. Again, the repetition, the feeling that is emoted through that repetition. Calling people to a unity and then hitting them again and again with what unites us. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. As we read that extensive list, we are to feel the weight of all that we have in common as believers in Jesus. This is what unites us. Our unity is not an accident or disposable. The greatness of our salvation from God and our unity with one another is completely worth making every effort to maintain it. Couple thoughts as we close this morning. Number one, live a life worthy of the gospel. In my life, am I living in such a way that is worthy of being saved by grace through the sacrificial death of Jesus? Am I living in a way that glorifies the God who forgave my sins, reconciled me to himself, and guarantees the hope? Of eternal life. Live a life worthy of your salvation. Secondly, cultivate in your life the unifying virtues of humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance. We cannot be unified as the people of God without growing in godly virtue. Our strategies for getting along and making peace will not be effective unless we are people who pursue godliness through humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance. It is work that is easily forgotten and neglected, but without it, I don't see how we can succeed. Three, preserving the unity of the church requires willingness and active participation. Peace in the church doesn't just happen. All of us have a role to play in the unity of the church. All of us need to be willing and active participants in the work of peace. And fourthly, our faith unites us in so many ways. Again, as you read that last list, you're hit again and again with what unites us. We are one body, we have one spirit, we have one Lord, we have one faith, we have one hope, we have one baptism, we have one 
God. God has united us through the work of his spirit. May we be always committed to maintaining and guarding that unity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. That as we look at the commands that run throughout this part of the book of Ephesians, as we seek to live out the truth of your word, that we would live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would cultivate humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance, and that we would be eager and make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that we would do so on the solid rock of all that unites us. That we are one body, that we have one spirit, that we have one Lord, that we have one faith, one hope, one baptism, and one God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.